We are facing an unprecedented food insecurity crisis right now. Please donate to your local food bank and help those in need who need it the most. Log on to GetTheBackstory.com and get the Backstory Podcast exclusive crossword tea. Every shirt sold will provide 30 meals to families in need with a donation to Feeding America. Follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at BackstoryPCC and on Instagram at GetTheBackstory.com. Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Colby Cole, and this is Season 3. This season, I've got some exciting interviews, but today, in this episode, I'll speak with one of hip-hop's most iconic truth-tellers from one of the most successful groups in history. Not just musically, but a group and artist that culturally changed the landscape of music and influenced the country. Chuck D from Public Enemy. I came through a time in 1976, 1977 when rap was starting, when people used to get cheap, which is the same thing as blunts, you know, at right, a lesser right. amount. And people used to get the old E or whatever. Right, which is and the same then, thing. And, you know, people see them today and they start laughing. Oh, that's nothing. That's not what's his name back then. Oh, you look like that. I say, yeah, you're going to be looking like that in a minute, too. Right. Uh, acting like that. So I just, I'm going off of experience off of people that I came up with. Right. And I say, you know, these are things that are pumped in our neighborhood. And they don't, they don't give us no advantages. Right. We ain't even getting paid off of it. Right. When I first started in the media business, Public Enemy was just getting started as well as a group on the heels of the tremendous success of Run DMC, who were the superstars of the genre in the mid-80s. Public Enemy, or for short, we just called them P.E., was a 180-degree turn away from the other artists that had been released on the iconic hip-hop label Def Jam. I was able to see the seeds of Public Enemy be planted in the Def Jam universe and watch their growth as I was navigating my early years in radio. During this time, I had a chance to meet Chuck and develop a friendship. And when I finally got my own show at the age of 21, Chuck and Flavor Flav, who were now superstars, made sure to circle back and give me several interviews. That's right in the place to be. I'll tell you what's up, the sky in the ceiling. How you feeling? Hey. Feels good to be home right here. This is our second home, Philadelphia. Not only that, but it's an honor and a pleasure to be on your show, you know. Hey, you got it going on, Cove. You the man. You the man. We just visiting. All right, so so what's happening? Apocalypse 91, The Enemy Strikes Black is out in the stores. It's kicking. What you sold, what, 1.5 million albums on that? Yup, and we selling more, hopefully. Yeah, you well, you know, basically it's, you know, like, um... Well, one thing we try to do is we try to support our fan base. You know, we call them family. We don't even call them fans. I had a chance to recently speak with Chuck. This interview was recorded in 2020 on the eve of Public Enemy's 15th studio album, What You Gonna Do When the Grid Goes Down. And for context, it was recorded six weeks before the highly contested presidential election. You will notice that Chuck, as per usual, which is what we the people love about him, never holds back on how he feels. Cruz had stopped for a while. It was just threes, like Houdini was three people, Run was three people, right. it, Fat Boys were three people, you know, and we were the ones that said, we're going to come in with six to seven, and they were like, well, what's the, well, there was one, like like Jeff and Will, it's like, he's the DJ, he's the rapper, Terminator X the DJ, I'm the rapper, but all this other stuff, like, there was no definition for Flav. Right. Matter of fact, Rick didn't even want Flav. He was like, what is he? he if he's an MC, he's terrible. It's like, well, he's not an MC. Well, what, what is he? We don't even know what he is, but he's somebody that you got to have. It's just, I got to have him. 
And make sure you stay tuned after the interview for some exclusive bonus content from several interviews I had with Chuck and Flavor during their initial musical run. Um, everybody knows I'm suing St. Eyes and I'm in this big lawsuit and I hope to, you know, um, you know, see the neck bleed real bloody red till it turns green because I really don't care about them. Yes, this really happened. A major alcohol company used Chuck's voice in commercials for a malt liquor and then he sued them. You will hear all about it. It's the Backstory Podcast Season 3, Chuck D. from Public Enemy. We come full circle, Cole. Here we are, right? Yes, we have, Chuck. It's the Backstory Podcast. This is Colby Cole, and this is a very special episode with one of my favorite artists in the game. And I'm a first-generation hip-hop kid, and when I first got into radio, one of the first groups that I ever met was Public Enemy, so I have a really close connection to Chuck. So, man, welcome to the Backstory Podcast. How you doing, man? What's up, Cole, man? You know, we family, man. We go back a long way. It's honorable, man, to see. So how many people that you ushered in the game? Because I think back when you started 18, 19 years old, you had no idea that you would usher 100 into the recording and the music business and mentor them and teach them. And um, here you are, man, uh, a teacher, a guide, curator of the art form, hip-hop. Cats have been sitting there in your seat while you teach the classroom a long time, and that's honorable, man. Oh, man, I, I appreciate that, Chuck. And uh, we're going to get to the roots of your career, and the roots of your career and my career are very similar. So we'll share some interesting stories, but I really appreciate this moment and having a chance to talk to you. And in preparation for this interview, Chuck, I had a chance last night to just kind of go through some of the albums, some of the original classics from Public Enemy. And I got to tell you, one of the things that you were so instrumental to doing for me, and I'm sure millions of other people around the world were teaching me little facts about history that I did not learn up until that point in my life. Right. And when this music came out, we didn't have the internet. We weren't able to Google, like you had to do it the old fashioned way, but so many things or people or historical moments, I was able to learn, attain and grow and teach others through public enemy. So I wanted to say that because I think that's important for people to understand that there is a lot of education you can get out of music. But let me take you back to the first time I saw you. And that would be 87, and Public Enemy opened up for the Beastie Boys. It was at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. It was 20,000 white kids, basically, because the Beastie Boys were icon rock stars. And out comes Public Enemy, the S1Ws, uh, military transitions, walking forward, then cutting quick to the left and quick to the right with the weapons. It was a sight to behold, and then that beat just drops. And what was great about this moment, Chuck, was that um, nobody really knew who you were. And to be able to experience you all like that for the first time, because I didn't really know who you were either. I kind of understood it, knew it through Def Jam, but I didn't listen to it. But then I hear it in a stadium like that and the, and the beat. And, and you were coming from another place. You were clearly creating your own lane. You were ahead of your time. And everybody was just kind of perplexed. What? Is this shit that we're watching? So tell us a little bit about yourself, Chuck. Where did all this come from? Let's just give me give us the backstory on Chuck D and Public Enemy. Well, I was born in 1960, Cole. Parents from Harlem. 
born in Queens. And so therefore music is a part of our whole blood in the house, man. It's like right. it's on just like the walls got paper on it, wallpaper or whatever, or panel, whatever. It's part of the house. So I grew up with music in the household like a lot of black kids did, whether somebody would play the music, which we didn't have, but my mom had a record player. So Motown, Stacks, Atlantic, James Brown in there, Ray Charles, a Columbia Jazz Club, although my pops didn't listen to jazz, but he, the records would come through the jazz club. These records are always in the house. As a shorty, I'm able to look at the records, look at them, see what they're about. But the songs that played in the crib were always about like love, man, and love for the people. And so in that mix, you got Curtis Mayfield and Impression. You got James Brown saying, say a lot, I'm black and I'm proud. These records, this music spoke to us. It wasn't just my household, but every single black household had music that spoke directly to us. We never relied on the news to give our perspective or somebody. We knew that that news wasn't going to even come. But what we had was each other and we had our music. And that's why the music to black folks meant so much more because every other area was limited and shut off and cut off. But the music always had people saying not only what they felt, but what was necessary for others outside of it. So that was cool. And, and actually it's coincidental that you talk about opening up for the Beasties and the Spectrum a gigantic arena only on our third show. We drove a van there. We opened up. But you know what? It wasn't that we were visitors to hip-hop or that environment. The Beasties knew that they were visitors to hip-hop, was introducing it to 17,000 fans of theirs who were visitors to hip-hop. Right. And also, you know, Murphy's Law in there, we knew that the Beasties also came through Run DMC. So we knew that we wasn't visitors, but we was also infiltrating the real across it. As you see the Beasties, this is the other side of this, y'all. And then the Beasties was the guys that dragged me in, along with Run DMC and Jay. So these guys dragged me into Def Jam, into the recording music business. Even after Rick Rubin, I told them no for two years. But after Jay... And the guys convinced me that this is going to go. And I said, this looks like it's going to go head to head against rock in the same places. I said, let me try to add what we need to add to it. I remember when they jumped on Run DMC about the gang thing that happened at the concert in California. Yeah. And then the, and the media started to come at them. And I told Bill Adler, I said, I wish the media come after me because I would tell them what they could do with themselves and what this music is truly about instead of them painting a picture on it that's not true. So that was the beginnings of what things I learned, what I came up with, and what we could add to hip-hop and rap. And was it just me, Hank Shockley, Flavor, Griff, everybody comes from the same town of Roosevelt, Long Island, and brought whatever they did in their individual self to bring it to the pot of what I was rapping about. So I was the MC. Terminator was the rapper, but we come from that culture. I was a fan of rap. It was two years before records. I always had the ability, since I was going to be a sportscaster in my mind, I would make a cheap mic sound like a billion dollars. Cats would try to get me to MC. I'm like, nah, man, I'm just a right. fan, man. I'm just a fan. Right. But they just was like, yo, man, every time he get on the mic, he make it sound like a trillion dollars. And I said, well, that's because I'm sportscasting. Cause I used to be at the park barking while cats were dunking, and they would hear me on the side loud as hell. Right. But then later on, one thing met another, and uh, I actually started kind of rhyming to get whack cats off the mic. Because wow. we'd be up there at the college gigs, 
and everybody think they could grab the mic and rock, you know, and rock love is the message of good times. And here I'll be trying to get my dance on, you know, with some, you know, woman and whatnot. And all of a sudden she said, I don't want to dance no more. I said, why not? Because they're fucking up the game. <laughs> so I started getting on the mic to make sure that nobody want to get the mic. Right. So it'd be a long line. I get the mic, then the line behind me want to sit down because you don't want to come on after me. That's the 1970s, Chuck. So you went to Adelphi University? Yeah, I went to Adelphi University, and we did all our stuff at WBAU, which stood for We Broadcast at Adelphi University. And that was the extension of what we're doing at Spectrum City and Hank Shockley, Keith Shockley, Eric Sadler. But Spectrum City was Hank Shockley, Keith Shockley, and we were mobile DJs. So once we went to... The college radio station, we hooked up with Bill Stephanie, who was the program director, later on replaced by Andre Brown, Dr. Dre. Yeah. And we really made it like a hip-hop central, and it became like Run DMC's favorite radio station. They go around the world, be on tour. We gave them their first interview. Wow. So they felt comfortable like this was in their backyard. It only was like a 15-minute a drive from Hollis, so they come there in the middle of the night, be part of the radio show. Beautiful times of radio, as you can relate to, yeah. you know, doing radio in Philly at late night, the cats coming down or cats coming across town. Those are special moments that, that they say learn you. They learn you, man. Yeah. And, and you can never take moments away. And they grow the music. They grow the fanaticism. They grow the, the love for what the culture is all about. Those are special moments. And that's why even to this day, I salute and also tell people that do their, their radio show or their podcast, you're doing a great thing because you're making somebody really understand and love what they're hearing, what they're watching, and you're giving them a, a, a GPS to it. Interesting. So let me paint this picture. It's the beginning of hip-hop, and the music is exploding from all five boroughs of New York City, which is its birthplace, and you have this radio show. So I'm sure you had like tremendous traffic from all the rappers that were coming out during that era. Let me paint the picture. So this is the birthplace of hip-hop New York City. You got this radio station that is supporting this music that is jumping off all over the uh, five boroughs of the city. And it wasn't it like a rock station? Uh, well, well, it was a college station. You know how that goes. It's like it's like you know, 35 different programs on it and you right. got program directors and you got music directors and the music director that was the music director of the station, they wasn't hip-hop cats. And then when Bill became the program director of the station, then he did it from, you know, the people that would send records. He's like, okay, we have a hip-hop program director. Then eventually we had nine hours on the weekend. You wow. Know? But this wasn't like, this was a... It, it, it wasn't a given. It wasn't a thing that people just flocked to or the magazine. just that there was a thirst for it. It wasn't heard everywhere. You didn't hear these records on major radio um, in a week. You heard these records on the weekend. That was a time. I, know, I think you also could relate to that, too. Cats sure. would go up and down the dial to catch hip-hop because they couldn't catch it in the, in the, um, in the week. They only catch it because cats would have their, their radios or their boxes and have their cassette tapes. Our shows were so popular that they would tape them on the weekends and play it during the week. So talk to us a little bit about Run DMC and how they really wanted you, the radio guy, to become an artist. And they steered you towards Def Jam, but you held them off for a little bit. The beginnings of Public Enemy, how you got your deal, and of course the masterful 
Yo Bum Rush the Show album, which at that time was something that we had never heard before. Well, it was simple, Cole. We was all in the same environment, Long Island, Queens. Uh, that's where the hip-hop movement moved out of the Bronx and Manhattan around 83. Uh, Run DMC was significant on making that change. We just like that and Sucker MCs. Yeah. We played the record first. Then we gave the first interviews. But then we became intertwined. We were so close to that scene. It was a whole new scene. So and then when we made Public Enemy and Yo Bummer's the show, it had a significant meaning. It mean that we had a whole crew that was going to come through the one door that I emceed in. They, you know, Rick Rubin wanted to make Chucky e. D records. I, I, I already got an operation. Matter of fact, to give you some trivia, Original Concept got signed first in 84, 85. Mm -hmm. That's Dre and Original Concept. They acknowledged me on the B side and, and um, Can You Feel It on the A side. Rick signed them and also in lieu of trying to get me. I told Dre, why don't you get Chuck to rhyme with y'all? And I was like, I kind of got our own, you know, our own thing. And I kind of want to get in the radio, but Dre was already in the radio. So Dre tried to also get me to, to come in this situation as well. But once we found out there was a way that we all could come in through that one door, that's why Yo Bum Russian Show is called that. Because once in Bum Russian, once you get that door open and you're yeah. at the side of the door, yeah. everybody come running in. Yeah. And that's what we all came in. We came in as a crew from everybody, from Harry Allen to Dre to um, Hank to Eric. I mean, we came in the crew to the point where you really kind of didn't recognize who I was because I was shrouded with the whole crew. Right. And, and crews had stopped for a while. It was just threes. Like Houdini was three people. Run was three people. Right. It, Fat Boys were three people, you know. And we were the ones that said, we were coming with six to seven. And they were like, well, what's the, well, it still was one, like, like Jeff and Will. It's like, he's the DJ. He's the rapper. Terminator X is DJ. I'm the rapper. But all this other stuff, like, there was no definition for Flav. Right. Matter of fact, Rick didn't even want Flav. He was like, what is he? he if he's an MC, he's terrible. It's like, well, he's not an MC. Well, what what is he? We don't even know what he is, but he's somebody that you gotta have. It's just I gotta have him. So I'm rhyming. It's kind of like, all right, do everything else if you ain't rhyming. This is what everybody else's job was. If I'm rhyming, then everybody else better. S ones is moving, you know. Flav is all over the place. Terminator is animated, and I'm and I'm got the voice to fill up the spot. So I'm filling up the spot, and then when Flav is also on the mic, he's accenting me, and Regardless of all this before flow and all this over 45 years, you still can't unhear us because my voice is loud and strong and ain't, ain't dipped a bit. I could yell over a mountain and flavor. You can't unhear him. Right. When you hear him, you know him. Right. And, uh, and nothing's more evident is when myself, flavor and Primo hooked up to make State of the Union. Flavor is just coming with that chorus hook line that's repeated. Right. And um, it's my job to be able to say, well, bro, say this. And this will help you. But I, I'm so proud of what Flavor was able to deliver on this on this album because he was designated to hit off in key areas. So in the hook line of State of the Union and also leading off with the first verse of Public Enemy Number 1, taking my verse, that's what made two songs very significant. All right, Chuck, let's dig a little bit deeper into your debut album, Yo Bum Rush the Show, which was really, again, everyone's first introduction to Public Enemy. Yeah, it was just the beats, the sounds. 
um, the Shockley brothers, Hank and Keith, and and just the interesting sounds that we heard on the album, like the bagpipes on PE Number One or Time Bomb or My Uzi Weighs a Ton, You're Gonna Get Yours. So many interesting sounding songs that we had never heard before in hip hop. And of course, you always came with that bass and that beat. I mean, we came off the heels of the greatest rap album of all time that I thought that signified that rap music and hip hop could do just like rock music was doing. And that was Raising Hell. Facts. Where Rick and Run DMC and a little bit of Larry Smith got involved with Raising Hell. And I was like, that's it, man. When I first saw it in the store, man, I couldn't stop staring at it and turning it around and my brains were blown out. So that was the template to do an album. And hey, we didn't have no no singles on the streets, really. We came out like with an album with Public Enemy Number One, which was really seriously a three-year-old record at that time. Wow. I did it as the tape in 84. I mean, I could go solo like a Sugar Ray Bolo. I wrote that after Sugar Ray beat Duran. <laughs> wow. So that's how old that record was. I, I had to update it, and I could go so like a Tyson Bolo, you know what I'm saying? I had to update that record. So the techniques that we did, you know, Hank Shockley has the greatest ears in hip-hop because he takes the craziest chances, just like a rock dude. We would have a sound system to do mobile DJ, and the cats would have stacks, and Hank would take three speakers and make the three speakers outsound the stacks that people been like they would labor to bring in all these stacks and hank would bring three speakers mid-range uprange and bass bottoms and make those kick ass as big as twenty thousand stacks he killed them hank and keith come from a father who grew who raised them you know to a certain extent with sound always have sound systems and speakers and stuff like that so they grew up with sound as their main thing. Eric Vietnam Sadler was a musician who was in the same studios that we had in Hempstead who actually curated bands and had bands come through in rehearsal. Eric always was, he was a musician. Me, I was the rap head with the, with, you know, following the lyrics here. So together we became the Bomb Squad because we all took a different layer of production and laid it in. Even on Yo Bummer's show, Bill Stephanie, who brought us into Def Jam, was is playing bass and also the voice on my Uzi Ways and Time. So Bill, who really ushered in the pioneering of rap radio shows, you know, brings us in on uh, Def Jam and also is involved inside the production of the first album. I would tell you this, that the first, second, and third albums were albums that were made by production teams. After, in the 90s, what happened is equipment got a little bit more easier, became simplified, and then what ushers in? The one-man producer. Right. Where it wasn't so much. Before, you needed like three or four people just to make a mix on the board. And how did we decide to make noise as our aspect only because myself and Flavor could cut through the noise no matter what it was. So that's why that became a, a, a staple imprint of ours. Because if you ain't got the voices to cut through the noise, then it's no use doing the noise. That's true. We just did the opposite of what Marley Ma was doing on like the bridge by MC Shan. You know, bridge, bridge, you know, and 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 Shan rhymes over the beat. Well, with us, the beat could be the hook, and we're gonna rhyme over and make it noisy. Public Enemy Number One came simply from a song I wanted to make 
to I wanted to to chase my girlfriend away. And when the minute that at my girlfriend at the time and she liked my records, I knew I was making the wrong record that I liked. I wanted to make something totally different from Luther Vandross and whatever she was playing. <laughs> so I was making a record that was meant to be irritating from minute one. And there's a long story on how Blow Your Head by the JVs settled in my mind of being something that I always heard in my head. That's another whole long story. As a matter of fact, but it does bring us full circle on this album, What You're Gonna Do When The Grid Goes Down. Public Enemy Number One was joined by Run and DMC and Ad Rock and Mike D and Terminator on some scratching and Dre at the end of the song as I on my 60th birthday called them I said listen I want to pay homage to y'all wow for bringing me in because of this record mm-hmm. and Ad Rock and Mike D have a pact that they're not going to be doing no Beastie Boys and they're not going to be rhyming or none of that because MCA was you know, the driver, and they said, we're going to chill on that. Right. And Run and DMC, who is basically like D, who I work with all the time, is like, yo, Chuck, just call Joey. And I, I called Russell to call Joey. And when I called Joey, I thought Joey would be kind of difficult. And Joey was was just enthusiastic that I even asked. And then I had that MC to MC conversation with Joey. And Joey said, and I just said, Joey, just be you. Just be you, Run. And Run was like, I'm thankful that I, I talked to another MC of my era, a caliber, that just told me just to be me. And so Run was invigorated. I said, man, yo, bro, the world been trying to sound like you forever. That's true. So when Run is actually spitting on Public Enemy Number 1, it's a dream come true, bro. So that that in the, on that album, we are joined by a lot of our friends, but it wasn't like this thing where... We're going to be with Def Jam, so the first thing we're going to do is get a lot, as they call it, features and collabs. No, we were doing these songs and these features anyway. It just ended up that way. Right. From Ice-T to Real, you know, the Daddy-O. It was like, just this is how we've been recording anyway, and it just ended up. And the, the final touch on it, Cole, is when BT reached out, especially with all what was going down right. at the beginning of this year, especially after uh, George Floyd was murdered. And young people went to the streets to actually say, look, we're going to go on our local area and we're going to speak to this because it's just too much of this. You know, the list is full of this. We're expecting the expected and this got to stop. So young people moved on that. I thought, and I always work with new MCs, seasoned MCs. I said, something out of that is going to be some MCs that's going to speak to this. And a lot of them did. But when BET wanted to move on it, they said, listen, Chuck, we got an idea. Nas, Rhapsody, Black Thought, YG, you know, fight the power. You know, Quest going to put it together. The position of an OG is to understand the energy and the direction that it is. And you don't fight that. You got to be a fool to fight with that. I'm like, salute that. Because you salute the young energy and you guide, counsel, and direct. But if that's the energy where it's going to positivity, you salute that. They're saluting you. I'd be an asshole to be like, nah, I think it, nah, I don't get in the way. And that's how that happened. And that added into what already was around. And it just ended up like Public Enemy has all these features and these collaborations. But it happened organically because that wasn't the plan. The plan going to Def Jam was simple. Flavor felt that, yo, man, I want to do something in a major. 
Play was a star. I wanted to do something amazing. I already did 20 years of independent stuff. Chuck, come on, let's do this. I was like, eh, not every major, but then Def Jam stepped up. I was like, okay, this is a compromise. This is a settlement between me and you. We have our company. It could be with a major, and Def Jam is more than happy to include Public Enemy into their mix because they realize, just like CBS or Sony would realize with Bob Dylan, that sometimes important is great or is greater than popularity. And, um, and, the, and the numbers are about the relevancy of quality as opposed to quantity. Mm-hmm. And um, you got to honor that. If they honoring you on that, you got to honor that. So that was mine and Flav's settlement on that. And we differed on where a Public Enemy album is going to be. If I'm doing a lot of the work, bro, I know what it takes to do a lot of the work. He says, yo, man, but, you know, we could do this, da, da, da. I said, I'm still going to do a lot of the work, bro, but I could see that. Let's do right. it here. And that was right. our and it's got to be a full circle moment for you all to be back on the label that was sort of the birthplace of hip hop label, Def Jam, which launched so many great artists in the heyday of the genre. And for you to be back there after all these years, putting out an album, I mean, the, the, the label is completely different. Probably not a lot of people there that were there when you were there, but it's good to see Chuck D, Public Enemy, Flavor Flav's name next to Def Jam again. Well, you know, you've worked with Def Jam. Everybody that you know that worked with everybody that that came from anywhere that era has worked with Def Jam on yeah. one way or day, day or another. And most of the uh, incredible service people like yourself got so many Def Jam plaques up on your wall. So it shows that, listen, there's no time for micro differences at this point. You know, what you're going to do when the grid goes down is not trying to say this is a record that inside it, we're going to Easter egg you a solution or how you could get clarified. We're way beyond that, man. What we do is saying there's a question that we use the platform of recording to ask everybody the question. Are you prepared for government tricks? Are you prepared if it all collapse, an asteroid comes, aliens going to pop up to keep you away from going to those polls and voting? And we don't even have the micro differences that that a bot could come up and, and try to set you off and vote for Kanye or some other whipping of mass distraction. Really a simple code is the side that we on versus the side that hates us. That's true. And the reason I say that, to generalize this, is that if you have a side that basically says that your lives don't matter or don't matter as much, that's spreading unnecessary hatred. you got to hit that right at the head and say, man, listen, there's nothing that you can say. There's nothing you can vouch for if we don't matter. And, and here's another thing, man. Black Lives Matter is not a terrorist organization. Not at all. Black Lives Matter is beyond the organization. Black Lives, you could go to the Urban League, to the NAACP, old school organizations, and they was Black Lives Matter. Not maybe in the terminology, but they was Black Lives Matter versus a society that said we don't matter. It's not just an organization or or Antifa is a terrorist organization. This is a state of mind that says, yes, we matter inside white supremacy. White supremacy might be a heavy term, you know, we're in an area where people won't look up the term. They'll, matter of fact, be offended by it without knowing anything right. about it. So that's where we are. And this is where culture and music steps up, where it truncates. It makes a headline. It could go culture versus hype. It can actually attack these things that have been pouring on our heads anyway and make them in great sound bites. Music is a great sound bite. 
You know, the news has become a soundbite. So you got to cut that off at the pass and juxtapose, you know, the, the right over the ills. Well, if you think about in real time where we are now in society compared to some of the things that happened in the past, not much has changed in regards to our community. However, one source of where we got inspiration, the music, has changed a lot. But here's another thing, Cole. The biggest difference between 1990 Fear of a Black Planet and 2020 is that people have changed. Because people have been born and people have moved on and died in those 30 years. Correct. You don't have the same grouping of people that was in the mix 30 years ago that made things happen or not happen. It's a different demographic right now who's in the mix as opposed to 30 years ago. Some old heads was in a mix back then and kind of in a mix now, which makes me say, why would I ever fall victim to the goonology of Donald Trump, man? It's like this dude was back then half-baked celebrity, privileged, real estate kid, you know, pumping up his casinos in Atlantic City and putting logos on, on jets with USFL football teams and going on page six with the chicks and all that. I'm just like, dude, cool, whatever. Right. The minute that you say you were president of the United States, we got a problem, man, because you're not that dude, man. And why the hell are you in charge of governing millions of people with the rest of the world looking in and say, yo, how did that happen on y'all's watch? You're right. Hey, Chuck, let's talk a little bit more about your musical perspective. You know, the point I was about to make um, a few minutes ago was Public Enemy itself as a group was way ahead of its time with the messaging and the music. So let's go back a little bit further because uh, I think this is super important. So you released your debut album, Yo Bum Rush the Show, in the winter of 87. Yes, sir. But that summer in 1987, you did a song that really turned hip-hop upside down with not just the sound, but the actual message in the music. And I'm talking about Rebel Without a Pause. Right. And in this song, you were dropping so many gems. And like I said to you earlier in this interview, that Public Enemy was an education to me. It was stuff that I had just never really learned before. Uh, I definitely didn't learn it in school. I did learn some things from my parents, but you were just dropping little gems that made me want to look further to dig this stuff up. For instance, the way you use Minister Louis Farrakhan in the songs, his speeches, in between the beats, and all of a sudden, Public Enemy was instant education for young black America. Was that done on purpose? Was this your mission? Well, I was 27, 28, so I'm not going to rhyme about high school. We wasn't trying to be impressionable to young you know, young people. We was trying to say, we got something. If y'all want to climb up to where this is at, we got something that's good for you. But we're not even talking to you. We're 27, 28 years old. Mm -hmm. We learned how to get a message in the music that was bumping from your hometown folk, you know, Kenny Gamble and Leon Hump and Tom Bell. Yeah. Philadelphia taught us how to put the message in the music, keep you moving, keep you dancing, and be unapologetic. So, I mean... I remember a jam, man, back when I was 17 years old, and it was by the Philadelphia All-Stars. It had, like, Teddy Pendergrass, Lou Rawls on it, Dee Dee Sharp, you know, uh, Billy Paul. It's called Let's Clean Up the Ghetto. So when they tell you that, yo, kids ain't trying to hear this, young kids ain't trying to hear this, yo, I dug that record so much, I tried to clean up my room. Right. I was raised on Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff and Tom Bell blessing us to say, you can keep it moving. You can bump it, but you can put something in there for the hood that's going to make us say, okay, that's good looking. But, you know, that's Philadelphia. To me, 
even though it's had its trials, tribulations, its ups and downs, there's never been a city with the level of true brotherly love for a reason than Philadelphia. The only reason that Philadelphia would have lapses in brotherly love was because something from somewhere else was always fucking with it. You know, Philadelphia is always trying to figure it out in a packed situation, how to figure it out. And I kind of get caught up there, maybe like a D.C. or New York. We learned that from Philadelphia, man, as, as, as Shorty's growing up in New York, that that city was maybe a little different from the city that we came up in. Well, looking back, I can really see how you had a real close connection to the people of Philadelphia. And what I really admired about you and your crew was how uh, when you would come to town, we would go to the hood. Right. I mean, there was no internet. There was no social media. We would go to the hood with you and we would walk through the neighborhoods and you would talk to everybody, shake everybody's hand. There was never nothing Hollywood about Public Enemy, specifically you. You would blend in with everybody. Then it was like you had flavor all wound up and then you just kind of let them go. We would be in some of the roughest neighborhoods in Philadelphia and there was no security, no nothing. You guys would just kind of roam free. And then this really leads me to the next album. And I'm talking about It Takes a Nation's album, which came out in 88. It is one of the greatest hip-hop albums ever made. It is in my personal top 10, and I am a core hip-hop head, and that's in my top 10. The beats, the lyrics, the messaging. You even had little moments where you, uh, the Shockley Brothers would play a little beat, and then bam, it was like the calm before the storm. And it seemed like you took all the things that led up to that moment in other albums, you took it to the next level. At that point, how did that moment change you? And were you surprised at the reaction of the album? Well, the album didn't change me. I was changed before we made the album. It was the album that was made, what you call Post Passport. Mm -hmm. After we had left the United States, I couldn't wait to leave the United States, man. Our first city that embraced us outside, the first city in the United States was Philly. B brings us down, Lady B, EC, LaRock, Mimi embraced Public Enemy songs just out of the gate. Um, that just was the truth. We came out and did a promo for, for Lady Beer after midnight, and we all drove to after midnight with the 98 posse and, and Jeeps and, and vans. And I told everybody, I said, well, it's about 60 of us here. But what we're going to do with this line that's around after midnight, we're going to go before we get in, we're going to shake everybody's hand. That's exactly what I'm talking about. So cats don't even know who I am, what I look like and all, but yo, what's up? I'm right. Chuck D. Public Enemy. We about to do this thing down there. When they all come inside the gig down at the uh, the old... Um, After midnight in the basement on Cherry Street. Right. They were like, yo, I do just say what's up to me outside. Right. So we had a psychological effect by the time we hit the stage. And I think we played with Ultra... And we played with a couple other acts, and they were like, you know, and they were maybe in the back. We had the crowd on our side because they were like, yo, man, I saw a dude shake my hand. Then right. he's on stage. I'm going to big up. We used that as saying, listen, man, we ain't no different. There was a time, one time I was in Philadelphia, and I went back home to Long Island on the train. But I caught Scepter before I caught the train. So I'm on the train, right? It's just me. It was like three in the morning, Cole. You know how I used to roll. Oh, of course. That was a cheap way to go. I think I took step to the trend and then took the train, right? So I'm over on this side, and I'm looking on the other side of the seat. There's like four people on the train. Right. And Cat had bum rushed the show on it. So he gets off the train and looks at me and stares at me, but didn't really know because it's before videos and all that. But right. then I see, you know, I'm in the middle of the mix where cats don't even know who I am. I know I'm yeah. catching this bus. Yeah. I'm catching this train. I mean, we would be in the in the neighborhoods, Cove, and cats wouldn't even 
you know, know they they kind of know what I'm on assuming. You know, I'm not six foot five, so they'd be like, and they wouldn't know that I'm right there with them. Then later on, it's like, oh shit, whoa! I didn't even know you was in these dogs. Those are beautiful moments, bro. Beautiful moments that would never ever get taken away from you because I'm a dude like you know. I, I listen more than I talk. I'm quiet, but if I'm asked to speak, then I'm going to give you what I know. So it could be beneficial, baby, to both of us. You as listening to me, me as listening to you. And that's how regular life is. A lot of these values and attributes and principles don't come across in the music because these are the things that managers used to be able to teach. These are the things that older folks used to be able, even the old you can't roll in, in the Georgie Woods back in the day and not and come in there with a chip on your shoulder. Correct. He was, he was what you call an OG mentor. You had to go in and be blessed and learn. And you and you followed up with that. B followed up with that. You know, Mimi followed up with that, whatever Georgie Woods, uh, uh, you know, would do back in the days and said, listen, we are the community and no better community. I hate to be biased, but it is what it is. Philadelphia was what it was inside the booth as it was out on the street. It was like, it was seamless. So I had a lot of, a lot of great joys going in there and being part of that. Later on, we make it takes a nation of millions. You know, our main city is Philadelphia and London international. London is our first city. Well, the, really London, our first international city, but really the city that caught as much fever. That's why on the takes a nation of millions to hold us back. I dedicated to Philadelphia and in London. Those were our two cities, man, hands down, man. And um, to the day I die, man, those stories, those conversations, those brother and sisterhoods, the child, we, we, we had a great time. Those, you take those joys to the grave, man. So when somebody comes up and tries to be bleak with rap music with me, I say, I don't know what you're talking about, man, because this thing that I've experienced, man, you can't purchase the feeling and the conversation and the seeing the smile on somebody's face when you give them some jewels or some information or the smile on my face when I'm hearing somebody's story and try to, you know, figure out how I can help. So it takes a nation, it was a reflection of those two to three years of what went down. And my most joyous moment, Cole, was playing the spectrum. I think we played this one with Run and, and opened it up with, with, with um, right before Run and, and and Jeff and Will and the Public Enemy banner went up in the spectrum. Wow. In the middle of the groups. And Cap got up and put the fist up and saluted. I'm like, this is unprecedented for anything in music and hip hop. And I really, that sticks with me, man. That's an emotional chord, man. All right, so let's take it a little bit further down the line to 1989, because it seemed during this time period, every summer you would just drop a, just a heat rock. And everybody would just be, all the DJs would play it. It would be just an amazing song, an amazing sound production-wise, and an amazing message. So we get to 89, and we got Fight the Power, right? Right. And that was really a soundtrack song off of uh, Do the Right Thing, Spike Lee's classic film, uh, you did a Fight the Power video in protest signs in Brooklyn uh, with all the different cities that represent Public Enemy. It was a really cool video. If you've never seen it, you got to check it out. And Fight the Power was the lead single off your 89 album. Right. 
Fear of a Black Planet, which, again, another classic album, Speaking to the Moment, the Night of the Living Bassheads remix was on this album, and that really told the story of the crack era that we were just sort of coming out of at that point, but had done so much decimation to the uh, African-American community. And then there was uh, She's Watching Channel Zero, which was, again, you were way ahead of your time. Um, this was way before reality television. You kind of focus a little bit on soap operas in here, but the influence that television was having. And, you know, now look at reality television. It's all television. And coming up in a few uh, minutes on a podcast, Chuck, I'm going to play some of our classic interviews that we did in the albums after Fear of a Black Planet, uh, Music and Our Message, and a couple of the other uh, albums that you had out. But I wanted to bring it full circle to the 2020 album, because you really have 30 years of hip-hop and guest appearances on this album. It's really a solid body of work. So give us some background on this uh, new project. Well, yeah, I, I think it came together organically. What you're going to do when the grid goes down is making a question to say, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Um, we use the platform of recording to say, we just want to ask that one question. So a person that even got by it or listened to it or whatever, it's just ask the question, are you prepared? Are you awake because you'll have to be for the first time in my lifetime i'm experiencing a situation of uncertainty which is on the borderline of of, of fascism in the 21st century you don't know what fascism is when i tell people i said it comes in shiny faces but with the same old smell and the reason why we reach out to destroy systemic ills racism sexism and all those other isms that put us backwards as, as, as a society and civilization, you know, we destroy those things and cultures the way that we do it. You know what I'm saying? You got to fight the fight, the power. You got to fight the power. You got to fight for love, man. You got to right, You got to fight for peace because it seems like sometimes the power is not about love and peace. So you got to fight that. Yeah. And if you don't, it, it will submerge you in that gravity, man. So like I said, it's like, The first five years of Public Enemy was to make a cultural statement as a foundation to grow wherever it has to grow and not be there in leadership because we, you're 60, 62 years old, you're not in leadership in culture. But what you do, it's like you're there for counsel, you're there for direction. Young energy was in the streets and that's the leadership. Basically what you had earlier this year was what you call a leaderless movement. Couldn't find one person. Right. It happened because of the the tipping point of what happened to George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. It's a leaderless movement that's moving forward with logic, rationale, and deductive reasoning. And as an OG, you kind of like you stay out of its way. Doesn't mean that you like stay invisible. You stay silent. You there. You visible. When somebody say, "OG, oh, what do you think, man?" Well, you know, boom, boom, boom. What do you want to do with that? You know what I'm saying? Well, I think we should do this. What do you think, OG? You think that's wise? You know, this is the dialogue that old heads need to have with younger heads, but old heads can't jump in thinking they're going to replace younger heads. That's why the government is wrong. When the government said they're going to run three old white men, right, just to generalize it, one, the dude, Bernie Sanders, I believe in his principles and values as a guy that's putting out there like you need health care right. yeah with an 81 year old mother and a one-year-old granddaughter 
health care means, yo, come on, man, child care for my daughter. You know what I'm saying? When she goes working, I mean, who's taking care of her child? You know, how's that work, man? Climate and all that stuff. I I like what Bernie Sanders would say. That doesn't mean I was going to vote for president. I'm a lot smarter than that. But he's 79, Biden's 78. Donald Trump, 75. I mean, what are you telling young energy and young people in the United States of America? And at the same time, police just blindly doing what they do, whatever county and jurisdiction they at. And what are you telling them? You tell them, like, basically, y'all don't matter either. So older energy, man, you save your energy for advice, counsel, be a consigliere, direction. Cool. You come to me, boom. I'm I'm there with you. I'm riding with you. But you know what? I'm not just riding with any old thing. I'm here making sure that you won't be embarrassed to ask us for directional counsel advice. Doesn't mean you have to do it. Because eventually every grown person has to govern their life and themselves. But advice by older people instead of replacement. You know, the government doesn't, you know, for years they didn't want young energy. That's what turned young energy off of voting. It's like I don't, I don't see myself. I don't see anything that you got planned for me. For sure. And young people and young energy is all about change. And one thing we don't do in America well is take change, especially on the older side of America. People like a certain comfort level. And when that's disrupted, that causes all kind of problems. And so, you know, with young people and their energy, they almost sort of like historically have to yo bum rush the show to create change. And we've had a couple of moments like that in history. And I think that's what's going on right now. But let me ask you too, Chuck, in our current moment in your life history, are we the closest to the grid going down? What do you think? Everything is stressed and maxed out. The grid going down is something you don't want. I don't want either. We're all connected. We don't want the grid to go down. Of course. I said, beware of government's plural tricks. They'll tell you that an asteroid's on its way. They'll try to figure out anything to distort you from the actual actual focus of what you need to do. So that's the difference. That's the big difference. What you going to do when the grid goes down, if it goes down, what you going to do? You still got to come up with something. See, we're connected to the phones because we remember that there was a time without them. So we couldn't wait for like, wow, damn, all I got to do is like, boom, 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 and send you some data information or get a phone from you. We could. But you got people who were born under that. You got people who were born within that. And so born under that and born within it, sometimes people take it for granted. And like I said, when Henry Ford made the, the, the car, the Model T Ford, right? The purpose is getting you from A to B, not getting on a horse and horseshoes, not like falling victim to, to the lack of a road or whatever. And cool, you got your car. He didn't foresee some teenagers in the parking lot doing, you know, circle eights on it, you know, blasting and bumping out, who riding and all. I mean, he didn't see that. Still, you know, that's not a car's purpose. But the more you get in the convenience of understanding, taking things for granted and stuff like that, you get more people using invention, especially that they grew up under, using it as a, a toy than it is a tool. And that's obvious because if phones are accessible for people from zero on up, Obviously, the first 18 or 16 years of their life is going to be more of a toy than it is a tool. Right. Uh, and that goes with everything. So that's just, just time itself and convenience and just accessibility, just working that you got to navigate, teach, control the narrative of what it is and what it ain't. Wow. So, Chuck, we're about to wrap 
And uh, coming up, I'm going to play some of our previous interviews uh, that we did to kind of bring things full circle, specifically in 91 with the Apocalypse 91 album, the Music in Our Mess Age album when that came out. Right. But, you know, I wanted to tell a little story because I, I really literally met you as a kid. I was, a you know, an 18-year-old kid just kind of getting into the business. I was an intern. And I always remember about you, regardless of the moment, you always showed me respect and you always acknowledged me in a room full of egos, everybody kind of, you know, pulling at you in different directions. There was always love and respect from you and Jam Master J. And you, you were two of the artists that, you know, I remember from that era that I had that connection with. Right. Just being an intern in the back of the room and just being a fan and you all recognizing and wanting to have conversations with me, especially about music, that meant so much. And I'll always appreciate that. I mean, you even introduced me to one of my closest friends to date. We are still friends 30-something years later, Vicky Miles. Yeah. And you really reinforced this when I got my first hip-hop show, Radioactive, and I had saw you in somewhere, and I was like, man, I want you to come down and do an interview. And you said, sure, no problem, I got you. Never heard nothing else from you. Never got a call, no nothing. And then one random Friday night, you show up at the radio station. You're uh, by yourself. You didn't have any entourage with you. You um, are driving a Ford Bronco. And I remember because the sound system in the car was almost like an arena sound system. Yeah. Because we got in the car and went for a ride to get something to eat because you wanted to play me some music in the back. And again, Jam Master J, God rest his soul, he did the same thing. I mean, he came down and... Brought 50 Cent down when nobody knew who 50 Cent was years before he had any kind of career. He did the same thing with Onyx. And I, I always really appreciate you guys. And they really don't make them like you anymore. So I want to ask you about your legacy. How do you want people to remember you? Well, I listen more than I talk and understand the accomplishments of others such as you. You know, I live vicariously through that. You know, I've had a lot of accomplish, uh, accomplishments, man, but... My joy and my pride, truly, man, is your accomplishments and, and what you do for this genre and, and this art form. I seriously celebrate off that. I don't celebrate off of my own accomplishments. And, it, mm -hmm. and it's funny that you said Jay, because Jay is the dude that brought me into this. I wow. go to the garden. They hold up all the Adidas sneakers. I've been telling Rick Rubin no for two years. And Jay looks at me and says, Chuck, is this, this ain't that bad, bro. Come on. And that was that. <laughs> Right. This, you know, Jay is our union leader, man. And um, I would tell you this much, and I know you probably felt the same way. When we lost Jay, we lost a great foundation of our momentum of where hip-hop was going, just in mentorship and tutelage of great people like yourself, knowing that, you know, that it, it, we lost Jay. It, it, it hurt in so many different ways, man. Yeah. It really did. He was a connector of people, and no one could ever say a bad word about him. Yeah. The definition of good dude is Jam Master J. I tell you one thing, I just want to drop this Jay Small Jay story. I'm going to the Philadelphia Spectrum. I'm on WBAU. Jay says he got me covered for tickets. Rundy is playing the Spectrum. Now, you know how manic that shit is, Cole. For sure. I get there, I drive down there in my car. It's like 85. I'm like, ah, damn, man. It's like a million people backstage. I kind of talk to somebody. They go down and get, and Jay comes up the ramp. Remember that ramp? Yeah. Jay comes up that long ramp of the, ramp of the spectrum. Says, oh, Chuck, and gives me two tickets. Wow. I'm like, 
damn, dude, is is he a man of his word or what? Yeah. I couldn't believe it, man. I could not believe it, man. With that, you know, and then being able to say, Chuck, this ain't all that bad, man. Come on, man. Be part of this whole thing with Def Jam and all that. Chuck, well, listen, man. I'm so thankful I was around and able to just meet you and some of these other uh, icons in our business in that era and now can memorialize it for future generations. And that's sort of why I do this Backstory Podcast. Right. Uh, Like I told you earlier, I'm going to dig into crates a little bit and play some of our early interviews. But one particular interview from 1991, you had come to the station to see me and you heard a commercial on the air and it was a St. Ives commercial. And you just went on like a full-scale rant about how you were going to sue the shit out of them because they had used your voice in one of their commercials. And in that rant, you were sort of like, no disrespect to Ice Cube, but that's some bullshit. And what was great was you were never afraid to voice your opinions about things that harmed our community, regardless if there were companies that were funding your friends in the business. And I always appreciated that about you. You never compromised your integrity for anybody. Yeah, you go off on that on, on that long trek for a while because I know I was just came off a tour where we was busting up a mall liquor bottle and it's th- on stage, and then they came out with the commercial. I was like, "Come on, man!" Yeah. And, and they used my voice. I said, "Come on." So uh, also, you know, salute and bless. We lost James Spady this year, and Spady also let me know exactly what was happening with the commercial and. Yeah, man. We have lost so many in the last 15 yeah. years, but that is also life, man. It's life, Kobe. Yeah, man. It's tough. It's life. That's why we do what we got to do, because time ain't promise, and time is the final currency, man. And that's why, you know, if we got to pick a moment. Yes, we're doing an interview. And I've told this to a lot of people. We're doing an interview, but beyond the interview, we're having a conversation. And my conversation with you is truly one of love, man. I appreciate that, fam. It's thankfulness. Thanks for everything you do. And not every time do we get a chance to say thank you, the amount of times we need to say thank you to people like yourself, service people. See, you've seen hundreds of people pass through your gates and do very well. The least we can do is say, yo, man, this gate is open for you to come through whenever and come up to this high, you know, high plane where it's all happening that you always invited because you helped get me there. So that's something that we can work on. That's just plain, simple class, man. And if anything, I learned from Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff is a lot of people came through his doors. They might have an opinion, this, that, or whatever, whatever, but a lot of people thank him for a chance. I thank Russell Simmons, man, and and Rick Rubin for creating something that, you know, thousands of people have gone through, especially Russell who gets underrated that thousands of people have come through and built their own thing through Russell. Yeah, okay. Have yeah. we butt heads? Of course, that's just life, man. Right. We, we, right. we, we, we agree to disagree to disagree to agree. I mean, right. that's it, man. The fact that we share fraternity and sorority with each other, man, and we have a fanaticism that, that, that loves us because of that, that we love them, man. And, and we, we can't, we can't never forsake that, man, because, uh, like to document this in time, man, is, is to say, man, yes, yes, Cole, man, I appreciate everything you've done for me and I appreciate the conversations and I appreciate most of all you being you. Oh, man, that's love. Thank you, Chuck, for your time. I really appreciate you. 
Can't wait for this whole COVID era to be over, man, so we can get back to performances because I would love to see a public enemy show. And we didn't get a chance to talk about that in this interview. But, you know, every time you guys perform, it was like a movie. You guys really put that time and energy and effort into the art and delivered a creative performance. And for somebody like me who is... Uh, worked in this business for a long time and seen several eras of hip-hop. There's nothing like an entertaining hip-hop show, and I appreciate what you guys did and, and look forward to seeing you guys soon. Ladies and gentlemen, the pride of Roosevelt, Long Island, Mr. Chuck D. Man, let me tell you something. Dr. J, Eddie Murphy, Public Enemy, Howard Stern, there must have been something in the water in Roosevelt Island. Yeah, well, thank you. Philadelphia became extra special, especially once Doc went down to play for the Sixers. He's our hometown hero. And then with Barkley, yeah, you put the line and I'll throw it down your throat like Barkley. Because Barkley represented a little bit of that energy at that time yeah. of uh, Public Enemy. Yeah, I got to be on Chuck's show tonight, man. I'll be on uh, NBA on TNT, man. They want me to come. Chuck, Chuck and Shaq want me on the show tonight. So, you know, that that's, that's always love, man. Thanks, Chuck. All love, Cole. Thank you, sir. You're listening to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Colby Kolb, and you just heard my most recent interview with Chuck D from Public Enemy. We discussed several parts of his career. Now let me take you back to some of our early interviews. After their 1990 album, Fear of a Black Planet, Public Enemy came back with their Apocalypse 91 album. And we discussed this project at that time. It's a brand new album which is coming out next week, man. What's it called, first of all? It's called Apocalypse 91, The Enemy Strikes Black. Okay. And uh, destruction of an of a, of a, a evil force that's out there, especially the ones lurking in our community. And The Enemy Strikes Black, I'm kind of hitting a lot of things that, you know, touch close to home, you know? I mean, because many of the things that's happening in our neighborhood is also caused by ourselves as well as genocide, you know? But um, like I said, you know, it's time for us to take control and um, excuses are running thin in the era of the Terror Dome. Okay, so um, it's coming out next week and you have a brand new video coming out also, right? Yeah, well, I did like, you know, a, a blitzkrieg of um, type of marketing, you know. I mean, last time around, we was telling everybody here, this thing is coming out, this thing is coming out. And um, this time around, I figured, you know, don't tell nobody and then when it come out, everything gonna come out. Um, the album, the single, um, the home video called Tour of a Black Planet, um, the, the single video is going to be out called Can't Trust It. Um, I mean, everything, you know, and um, basically to serve the rap community and the black community and whoever else wants to jump on the, um, the stuff that, you know, this is basically the stuff where we're coming from. Hopefully that you can pick up. Those that want to use it, um, hopefully could go a little further. Those choose not to use it, hopefully pick up somebody else like uh, Tribe Called Quest or BDP uh, or even Larry Lab from out here, you know, whoever, you know. It's just one of the notches to hopefully, hopefully keep the rap community strong, you know what I'm saying? This Apocalypse album featured the single Shut Em Down, which as you heard earlier in our current interview, we discussed the St. Ives Malt Liquor Company who used hip-hop artists in the early 90s to sell this potent alcohol to young black Americans, specifically young black men. The commercials they created were like songs and very popular at that time. In one particular song slash commercial, they sampled Chuck D's voice. Chuck was not happy and he wrote a song about it and he sued. And we discussed in that time. 
Well, the name of the record is Shut Em Down. I'm on like this low tempo tip, you know what I'm saying? Um, when we first came out with Bring the Noise, we was one of the first groups that really raised the tempo up. Now, Shut Em Down is on a low tempo. Um, everybody knows I'm suing St. Eyes, and I'm in this big lawsuit, and I hope to, you know, um, you know, see the neck bleed real bloody red till it turns green, because I really don't care about them, you know what I'm saying? And um, this has nothing to do with Ice Cube or EPMD or Rock Kim or all the rappers with it, because I just think they're getting exploited, you know what I'm saying? So as far as this is me against them, I don't invite anybody else to take on the battle against them, but I'm looking to cut their throat. You know what I'm saying? Straight up. I'm taking, I'm taking the juggler vein. That goes for any corporation that think they're going to come in our neighborhood and just exploit, you know, what little money that our community got. You know what I'm saying? I know like the beer companies, they be walking in our community everywhere you see. You see a, a beer, or not even beer. You know what I'm saying? You see a more liquor, St. I posters, you know what I'm saying? Right. So I'm like saying like this. Look, they don't care nothing about us, so the least we we can do is like support these people, you know. And I tell people, look, if you're going to do anything, you know, hey, at least drink what the white boys drink or something. Because this stuff is definitely aimed for our community. And, um, yo, I'm telling you, man, I'm squeezing the trigger. <laughs> I'm squeezing the trigger until I see red. And the red turning to green. You know what I'm saying? In 1994, Public Enemy released their fifth studio album, Music and Our Message. So let me paint the picture. At that time in hip-hop, the bridge between the second generation of hip-hop slash golden age, which consists of artists like Public Enemy, Run DMC, Houdini, and this new age of hip-hop artists like Anaz, Wu-Tang, and the ascension of the notorious B.I.G., Public Enemy was sticking to their formula in the midst of a serious music and financial change for rappers. Hip-hop was becoming an even bigger financial factor for artists and labels. Artists were going platinum and multi-platinum way more frequently, and Chuck D was looked up to by all of these artists. In this conversation I'm about to play, we discuss this new album and the changing landscape of hip-hop. You got a brand new album out. It's been it's been about two and a half years, man. It's about, it's been about back. two and a half years and change and whatnot. You know, what we try to do, the name of the album is Music and Our Message. We just try to do something different because, you know, albums to us is like child, you know, children. You know, each one of them is different. You try to pop a little different right. char- characteristics. Now, I can't make what I like all the time because, yeah, my favorite record right now is Craig Mack. You yeah, know, you yeah. won't be Flavor around next head. year. Flavor in your ear, yeah. you know. And, and, and my second best record is Volume 10, you know. Okay. Um, pump, pump, pump. pump, pump. Always laugh at all time, you know. Right. So I, I love those records, but I know as public enemy, we try to make something different. Maybe right. just laugh for two steps ahead and try different things and try to make hip hop some experimental type of thing. So I'm not in, you know, I love the New York Flip Squad Boom Bam style, but we decided to make some, you know, fast, extraordinary other type of stuff. You know, when you hear it in a club or when you hear us performing, you see us performing, you say, oh, I get the idea. And plus our, you know, our effort and our stance and our message um, is trying to be representative of the times and look out for our people. Our people is his fam. Exactly. You know, and I mean, you know, I, I never flip up and do, you know, you know, talk about 40s and blunts. And even though brothers might, you know, be doing that out there, right. I still got to be able to give them that option. All right. You know, it's your life, but here, this is the other side and right. you pick and choose for exactly. yourself. I'm looking out. I can't tell you what to do with your life, but boom, bam, you you would be mad at me if I didn't. You know, we talk about black on black violence. Uh, you even got a song about carjacking. I mean, it's yeah. like all kind of things on 
there that you rapping about. And people need to understand the music in our mess age and the music is our message. You cover so many issues in this album. Well, you can't digest it all in, in you know, one or two listens or pop it in and just say, yo, I got it. I didn't get it. Or, you know, you're going to, you know, lay back and boom. No, this, you got to definitely, you know, be open. And the thing about it, you know, um, you know, it takes some while to digest. Check out all our videos when right. we drop our videos and the remixes and stuff like that. And, and you'll be open um, February, sure enough. Okay, now when you talk about the videos, you also are doing a, your video, like your video for your current single, Give It Up. Right. So that was a great video. Whoever, whatever the con the concept of putting it together with the little puppets and stuff, that was fat. Well, when you write the song, you got to spend a lot of time writing the song, but also you have to spend just as much time writing the video treatment. You just can't go to right. a video producer and say, yeah, I'm going to give you a video, kid. You know, I know how the song go, kid, you know. And then right. you find out, you know, you got eight videos on BET that just look alike because they just throw them up on the, on the screen right, and you got right. eight that look just look like they all blend in or be on the box and just look alike. Right. So we have to do something that just stands out. And, and a lot of people say, well, I know it's expensive. No, no, we have to spend the time thinking about what's different. Now, mm -hmm. I've seen plenty of rock and roll or white videos out there, you know, that use clay animation. Right. And, you know, of course, you know, most people look at it and say, oh, no, nah, I got to, you know, they close their ears to it. Right. But I'd be checking for ideas. And I said, well, rap ain't never used it. So I flip it over to hip hop and I said, maybe it'll bug some people out. In the video, you don't make statements. You show statements of like, for right. instance, with the white rappers uh -huh. and the uh, the girls harder than men. What, what was that all about? Well, some things is getting out of hand. You know, like I, I feel the originators of a certain style, like when N.W.A. came along or, you know, you had, you know, you know, people doing their thing, showing another side, because I believe every story should be told, but it needs to be balanced. And I think the record companies are exploiting people to feel that they shouldn't take a positive step. So every, everybody feel they got to take the minus side or the negative side in order to be up in there to sell records. And, you know, we are people that got another side to that, you know? Right. More of us would be about chilling than illing, straight right, up. Right. You know, and, and they don't want to show signs of that. When you ever you see ourselves on TV, it's always like the black problem, crime, you know, drive-by, carjacking. Or we're rapping Tupac. They yeah. always say Tupac this, Tupac that. Or, or Flay or right, whatever, right. or Snoop or whatever. And I believe that, you know, I tell people, look, they say, yo, man, you know, I got to come real. I got to come real. You know what I'm saying? I got to represent the bomb, you know? I right, said, right. everything is real. I right. mean, all right, crime might be real, but everybody hugged their moms once or whatever. Right, so right, hugging right. your moms is real too. Right. So be real. Right. Show all sides. So I, you know, we just always looking for people to recruit on the plus side. You know, there's minus side and the plus side, and I try to say on the plus side because we all fam like that. Okay. Now when is this out? This comes out Tuesday, right? It come out Tuesday. I tell everybody, you know, before you make a choice, you know, hey, go check out the videos that's coming out. You know, take your time. You ain't got to rush to the store. You know, right. pick up Craig Mack. You know, right. pick up Volume Ten. Pick up the Boom Bam style. Give you know, give give a young group or give a young kid a break, you know, before you think about P.E., because P.E. going to be there, right? Regardless. And P.E. is thinking music, too, because yeah. when you listen to this album, you will think after this album, you will think about some of the things you've done in your life. One of my favorite cuts on the album uh -huh. was Live and Undrugged, part mm -hmm. one and two. Yeah, Live and Undrugged, you know, talked about, you know, I, I mean, on the MTV, they talk about Live and Unplugged. I said, right. well, hey, if it's unplugged, why you leave the TV plugged in? Right. <laughs> I said, you know, and it just talked about, you know, who really controls the drug game, you know, the, the dope man is just, you know, we keep being victimized and thrown in the joint. I mean, you know, I go up in penitentiaries all the time. I see 80 to 90 percent population black. Right. But the people that run the drug game is people in the government and whatever. And, you know, a lot of us say, yo, you know, I heard that before. But, you know, times ain't changing. They're getting worse. And when you start seeing, like, seven to eight-year-olds, you know, with, you know, gats in their pocket talking about slanging and everything, I think that considers to be a problem that, that you know, we got to step ourselves up. Throughout Public Enemy's career, 
they always talked about things that were happening in real life, real time in our community. You know, Night of the Living Baseheads, for example, we discussed earlier, was really a song about the crack era and its damage that it had done to our community. And at the end of the clip you just heard, and at the end of the clip you just heard, we discussed a song that he had on Music in Our Message that dealt with drugs and alcohol and its effect on our community. There was another song in that album that talked about television and what we as a community were watching and feeding our minds with. And it was really a precursor to what reality television is today. Chuck was always ahead of his time. But anyway, I want you to listen closely to what he is saying about drugs and alcohol because we continued the conversation and Chuck spoke a lot of truth. And a lot of what he is saying still applies today. I was born in 1960, all right? And then when I came... <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, see, that's why I could talk about no, the 60s okay, and whatnot, right. because I was there every year. Right. All right? So, you know, like, you know, but I still try to represent, right? I know y'all call me Papa, right? <laughs> they call me Papa up here, but, you know, I be, like, trying to communicate and represent. You know right. what I'm saying? I'm, re- I'm representing right, right for 34. So, anyway, you know, I, I came through a time in 1976, 1977, when rap was starting, when people used to get cheated which is the same thing as blunts, you know, at right, a lesser right. amount. And people used to get the O.E. or whatever. Right, which is and the then, same thing. And, you know, people see them today and they start laughing. Oh, that's nothing. That's not what's his name back then. Oh, you look like that. I say, yeah, you're going to be looking like that in a minute, too. Right. Uh, acting like that. So I just, I'm going off of experience off of people that I came up with. Right. And I say, you know, these are things that are pumped in our neighborhood and they don't they don't give us no advantages. Right. We ain't even getting paid off of it. Right. You and, know? And Mark Licker is just so potent. Because, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I know brothers incredible. that they could drink it for, you could drink it for five years, right. six years or whatever. I don't know too many brothers that's down in there for 15 and, and 20 years without right. problems. Right. You know, and I got happened to DMC. He had problems. He had mad before. problems, you know, after about nine years. And I got mad uncles in my family. I know everybody black out there got mad people up in their family. And now you can't say you don't that, you know, fall victim to drugs, alcohol and all kinds of mad disease. So I can say People still got the choice to do whatever they want to do. But my message also goes to people that's 18 and under. You don't want to see 13-year-old kids coming up, you know, blunting themselves out and 40 themselves up because they don't have that right to destroy themselves. So we got to be there as older people to show them the way and say, yo, straight up, look, man, it ain't for you and you're going to pay for everything that you do now. And if older people can't do that, they got to ask themselves, what are they here for? That's right. If older people can't show younger people, yo, this is the way to come up. Yo, look, I experience. I knew somebody that experienced the downside. Look, straight up, listen up. That ain't good for you. Check this out. Try this. You know, maybe try that. Try this. You know, the problem is that black people don't control education. We don't control um, economics. And we don't even control enforcement. So we got problems. We still on the, on the plantation. So older people, if you do know something, don't be afraid. Step up. You know, beat your chest a couple times and talk to somebody young. Because somebody 28 should be able to talk to somebody 18. All right, if they say, oh, I don't understand what young people be talking about. I mean, really, <laughs> hey, you got to figure out what that vocabulary is. Yo, my man, come here. Step here, kid. Yo, right, check this right. out. No, you don't want to do that. You know why? Right. Here, and then point to some examples. Right. And I don't care that a lot of, you know, a lot of times, like, for example, this basketball player that's from my hometown, right? He started getting involved and messing his life up, right. going the wrong way. And all I did was point to somebody that was all state back in 1976 mm-hmm. that was a bum on the street, got HIV in the whole nine. Right. I said, yo, that kid was in your same position. He was like, what? 
Damn, yo. And then right, when I showed right. him, I showed him a living example. He was like, yo, it was like that. You know, that's how we got to build. We got to build like that. Okay. These young these young men around me, man, I've been developing them for two years, but they're, they're only a particle of the young brothers I've been talking to for the last two years. These are brothers I work with. Right. But I at least talked to like two or three thousand in the last two to three years when I was going lecturing. And when I go lecture, I not only do it at the colleges, I do it in the high schools. Mm -hmm. I do it up in the state pens. And, you know, when I do it up in the state pens, it's real. I mean, everybody right. up there, you know, they could be a toy gangster all they want on the outside, you know, but on the inside is straight up real. It ain't jail right. is not fly. Right. It it's ain't not, nothing fly about jail. Not. And brothers in jail will tell you that in a minute. Yo, yo, real brothers in jail, you know, serving the ten to fifteen to twenty or Life. the twenty five to right. L. Yo, straight up it is not fly. You stuck, you ain't got no rights. So why you wanna act like a jailbird on the outside world? Right. Enjoy right. outside and right. you gotta work at it. And ain't no shortcuts in life. None. So you gotta work at it. A lot of people say, yo, man, it's hard, but that that was makes you hard and soft. Right. If you're able to buck the odds, then you really hard because you ain't you ain't falling for the okie doke. Thank you for listening to the Backstory Podcast. Check out our Patreon page for exclusive content. You can check out the Lost Backstory episode, Too Hot to Release. Support on the Backstory bonus level. We are facing an unprecedented food insecurity crisis right now. Please donate to your local food banks and help those who need it the most. Log on to GetTheBackstory.com and get the Backstory Podcast exclusive crossword tea. Every shirt sold will provide 30 meals to families in need with a donation to Feeding America. Follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at BackstoryPCC and on Instagram at GetTheBackstory. The Backstory Podcast is a Pod is Good production, written, produced, and voiced by yours truly, Colby Cole. Coming up on the next Backstory Podcast, one of my all-time favorite hip-hop groups, A Tribe Called Quest. Now, you was in uh, Poetic Justice. Well, you know, acting is not really my forte. <laughs> I like to, you know, write rhymes and things like that. But Kissing Janet, <laughs> you know, I had, you know. That was kind of fly, huh? Yeah, that was kind of high. Thanks for listening to the Backstory Podcast. I'm Colby Cole.